Have you ever felt that we're throwing too many new tools at the network, that maybe there's an easier way to solve certain problems that we've been trying too hard? I have this complaint. Some problems in networking, to me, they seem over-addressed, like oh, multi-tenancy, for example. How many overlays do we need, really? Or do we even need overlays at all to solve that problem? And for all the SDNified stuff that we have in the market now, how much of it has improved our lives as networkers or really moved the ball ahead for the networking discipline? Uh, I, I don't have all the answers to these things, but today on the Priority Queue, we are going to chat with Chris Marino. Chris is part of a team behind the open source Romana project. Romana looks at the problems of cloud-native networks, including the need for multi-tenancy, and comes up with the simplest possible solution using technologies we're all familiar with and no overlays are required. I'm Ethan Banks. Joining me is Greg Farrow. Of course, this is the Packet Pushers, a podcast. You can find this show at packetpushers.net, along with our many other fine technical shows. Chris Marino, welcome to Packet Pushers, and please introduce yourself to the audience. Ethan, it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, yes, as you said, my name is Chris Marino, and uh, I've been in networking for close to 20 years now. Back in the early web days, I was the founder of a very, very early server load balancing company called uh, Resonate, and that was really when I first got into networking. And I've been doing things involved with networking ever since. Took a little bit of a hiatus in the, uh, in the late 2000s before getting back into it in, in uh, 2010. And actually, that's when I started listening to your podcast. Back in 2010, I stumbled across it. And two podcasts in particular, I'll just tell you guys, pod, uh, podcast number 27 and 28, I, re- I played those two or three times repeatedly and backed it up and took copious notes about what was going on there. With, I, I'd love with, to tell you I remember exactly what 27 and 28 was, were, but I don't. It was about VEPA and um, uh, OTV. Yeah, okay. It related to what I was working on at the time, which was a new startup to solve the networking problems in Amazon. And the problem back then was it didn't have any VLANs. So we started a company called vCider to build VLANs inside of Amazon with an overlay technology that predated VXLAN. And, uh, and we worked very uh, hard to solve that problem. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it was a little uh, early and uh, no one really wanted that uh, technology inside of Amazon back then. Good news is uh, Cisco saw some uh, interesting technology there with their team and uh, acquired vCider back in 2012. And we became the core of Cisco's OpenStack Neutron development team. And uh, I spent the next two and a half years or so at Cisco talking to Cisco's customers about OpenStack, specifically multi-tenant networking and the things that were going on with Neutron and so forth. And that's where I really learned about the complexity of multi-tenant networking and cloud networking because, as you probably know, OpenStack networking is extremely hard. And back then, it was pretty rickety and, uh, and <laughs> fragile. So uh, it was really being steeped in that whole environment for more than two and a half years that made me step back and say, there's got to be a better way. Well, well, hang on. So, so let, let's, let's level set here then, because you're setting a stage of working with customers at Cisco, working on OpenStack projects and finding a lot of complexity. Why don't we define what that complexity is in a little more detail? We've mentioned multi-tenancy, we've mentioned overlays, and VXLAN came up. I want to start with just maybe define for us what cloud-native network is, because that term has right. come up more and more, and you guys use it with the Romana project specifically. That's what you're addressing, and it sounds like what you were getting at when you were dealing uh, with OpenStack at Cisco. 
Exactly right. So, you know, when I was back then, before the whole cloud native term emerged, I would frequently talk about Amazon style applications because Amazon style applications that relied only on layer three networking. And uh, there was tremendous uh, appeal to that style because it was so simple. Virtual Machine came up with a routable IP endpoint, and that's all it had. And application developers built their applications within those constraints. And that uh, certainly uh, made me recognize that uh, the re application requirements for this new style of uh, application development, what's now known as cloud native, didn't need any of the complex networking that was built into the enterprise. Again, you're making an important point here. Layer three only versus the normal way network engineers think about layering. Layer two, you've got the Ethernet concerns and VLANs and .1Q tagging, and then layer three, the IP that is within that. You're making the emphasis on layer three only. Correct. Absolutely. That is a very distinct and bright line between the uh, networking technology that we're promoting here, uh, the Romana Project supports, uh, and traditional enterprise networks that uh, have generally relied upon VLANs, uh, not just for IP address discovery, but also for segmentation and isolation. So uh, we make a very clear distinction between the two styles of uh, application architectures. And the cloud-native architectural style does not require layer two adjacency for anything. So our thinking is, let's deliver just enough of a solution to deliver the requirements for this new architectural style. And that's the premise for what uh, the Romana project is. Well, just backing up a step, if I'm in OpenStack, I can define a tenant with VXLAN using a VXLAN network identifier, put a wrapper around frames that belong to a particular tenant, and uh, and that's kind of my security boundary that makes me feel all warm and fuzzy. Is that a correct perception in how VXLAN is being used in OpenStack, at least in part? That's exactly right. That is 100% right. The point I'm making is a slightly different one. That is, well, two points that are sort of uh, intertwined. If you're running a traditional enterprise application in OpenStack that needs layer two adjacency, you absolutely need a VXLAN overlay. There is no way around that. Okay, if you, you could you know, do VLANs, but layer, regardless, you need a layer two broadcast domain to support those applications. There is no way around that. That's an application problem, though. That's, Correct. In other words, it's application-specific. Most apps are not that way, but there are going to be, this would be an exception rather than the rule. Correct. Now, when you want to support VXLAN in OpenStack using overlays, there are a variety of different technologies that are required. You need to encapsulate on the host. You need to forward uh, traffic between VLANs using a router that's virtualized on a separate host. So by the time you forward traffic between VXLAN segments, you're going off host encapsulating twice with two top of rack round trips, and it introduces tremendous latency and complexity to the uh, networking environment. Now, it all works. Don't get me wrong. It works, but it's complicated. It's, and it's not the most efficient path between two endpoints that are trying to talk Correct. to one another because of the end caps and the decaps that are going on. Because you just said end cap in a host, meaning it's happening in a vSwitch up in a, uh, a hypervisor host of some kind. Is that, That's what we're saying, right? Correct. Uh, or pushed out to a top of rack switch. For, for what part? It's, it, it's absolutely going to the top rack switch, but it could be going there twice. <laughs> and, and the end cap could be happening in either one of those places, just depending oh, on yes. where the tunnel termination point is happening. Ex exactly. Uh, and then there's yes. the router bit in the middle, especially if you're going in between two different uh, VXLAN segments. 
Correct. And, you know, I, I missed your point about the top rack switch. So, yes, you can encapsulate at wire speed on the top of rack switch. Cisco has some great products to do that. The problem is that you have to manage the VNIDs, and that's like a whole other data management problem. And who is going to organize that, and who's going to push them to the appropriate places? Cisco's ACI does that. VMware's NSX does that, and they do a great job for that. I'm not disputing the utility of those things. My point is simply that for the new architectural style that begins in Amazon, that adopts this cloud-native style, you don't need any of that. Because it's all it, it's Layer 3 native, we're assuming not Layer 2, so why do I need to take Layer 2 into consideration? So one point of clarification on that, Chris. I mean, you're talking about Amazon, which we would think of as public cloud, infrastructure as a service in, in public cloud. But this is true in private cloud as well, on the assumption that we're talking about a cloud-native network. It could be an open stack-based private cloud. That's exactly right. And so, uh, again, uh, one, of the th- one of the things that uh, we've recognized is that, you know, Amazon has, you know, educated a whole generation of application developers to work within their networking constraints. And, you know, a few years ago when I was working on the overlay network for Amazon, the thinking was that enterprise applications would migrate from the enterprise to the public cloud, which required layer two networking. Well, it turns out the exact opposite is happening. All the new engineering is taking place in the public cloud, and people are looking to take some of those applications and bring them inside the firewall. So now that requirement for layer two that used to exist inside the enterprise is kind of has, has disappeared. Because the applications were already re-architected to work in public cloud, and now we're bringing them in going, I already fixed this to work in a layer three only environment. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. So there's there's still there's still some uh, the devil's in the details clearly. And now so let's go back to your your earlier point about tenancy. So layer two did a couple of very important things. It provided for address discovery and uh, so forth. But what it also was used for, whether or not it was the best choice for that, but what it was also used for was network segmentation, and it provided the basis for multi-tenancy whether that be in OpenStack or even just in the enterprise, people will just give a department a VLAN or, or whatever. And that would be the, sort of the unit of isolation. So now, if you do want to use cloud-native applications inside your network, inside your, your private cloud or even on the, on the public network, you still got to solve that problem. You still have to solve the multi-tenancy problem. And that is really what Romana brings to this solution that you can just build your application on a fully routed uh, layer three infrastructure. It works. Google, Facebook, everybody does that already. But what they don't have to provide is the multi-tenancy. That's what Romana provides. It provides a tenancy model using only layer three. Okay. So that really in a nutshell is what the Romana project is. We are coming up with a way to deal with cloud native networks running cloud native applications that are used to being layer three only, and but still providing secure multi-tenancy just without the overlay component or whatever other unique tag, you know, wrapping around uh, an IP packet or I guess tags don't wrap around packets, but you know what I'm saying? A unique identifier for that packet that is going to identify it as belonging to a particular tenant. You've got a different scheme, so maybe you can expand now on exactly how Romana is doing this. Sure, absolutely. So I think it's also, it's kind of helpful to just to back up a a step here and provide maybe a little broader context. Nobody disputes that HP and IBM and Stanford and UC Berkeley and Comcast 
are multi-tenants. They all live quite peacefully and happily on the public internet. And that tenancy model exists perfectly fine and it's secure. And that tenancy model is at layer three. And the reason they're able to do that is because they have been assigned a separate IP address range. They go to ICANN and they get a, a block of addresses and they use them however they see fit. No one disputes that that's a multi-tenant model. Well, you're making the case that the whole world is a multi-tenancy yes. model based around the internet. That's really what exactly you're saying. Exactly right. Okay. Exactly right. And so that tenancy model exists. People have used it successfully. There's literally billions of dollars of infrastructure that's been deployed that relies on it and works successfully. So we've taken that, that germ of the idea and brought it down onto the, the actual server, the actual virtualization host, by taking actual IP address ranges and use them as the foundation for tenant isolation. So that's really the essence of what Romana can provide. Well, in the public internet, we've got uh, a, a huge uh, blocks of addresses that have been distributed over the decades and uniquely identify those, in this context, tenants. But in a private scheme, we don't have that. We've got RFC 1918. Those are limited addresses. So uh, how do we get to identifying unique tenants with uh, you know, a limited number of IP addresses available to us? Exactly right. So we begin with the idea that we can assign an entire 10 slash 8 network and put it inside a VRF, virtual routing forwarding, right? So essentially we allow people to take, well, you begin with the starting point that I'm going to use an entire 10 slash 8 for my cloud infrastructure. And I'm going to configure my infrastructure to isolate those IP addresses using standard layer three VRFs. That's sort of vanilla layer three networking. Cisco and all networking technologies support that today. So you begin with that. And then now you have the entire 16 million addresses to use and carve up however you wish. So essentially what we've done is we start with a hierarchy here by saying, okay, I've got a 10 slash eight, which is really 24 bits of IP addresses. And I start at the high order bits and say, I'm going to allocate some of those high order bits to indicate actual physical servers. And I can, let's just say for the sake of argument here, I'm going to, I'm going to identify eight bits of the IP address for the physical host. So that 10 slash eight now becomes a 10 slash 16. And so this, and again, host, we mean a hypervisor host that's going to have a whole bunch of virtualized endpoints sitting on it, but it's one physical box. Correct. Yep. One physical box. I'm going to assign that a 10 slash 16. And what that means is in this particular example, I could have up to 256 physical hosts, each with their own unique 10 slash 16. So I've already sort of partitioned and my address range to use that very simple hierarchical routed design. And again, this is very consistent with what people are using, simple spine leaf data center designs with hierarchical addressing. So it fits naturally right into that. You take your 10 dot address space and you break it up into chunks. You assign, I know there's multiple levels of hierarchy. We haven't gotten through all of them yet, but one layer of hierarchy is a host. You assign a slash 16 to a host. who, And within that host, that slash 16 is going to be broken up further. Going the other way, back in towards the physical network, the leaf spine architecture, now you've got a route, a slash 16 that you could point at that host, or I suppose you could summarize routes together uh, for a bunch of hosts that are hanging off of a particular uh, leaf, 
and uh, your routing is simple if you're exactly right. using your using your brain and uh, being careful in how you allocate slash 16 to hosts that hang off of leaves. That's exactly right. So let's uh, take the next level of, of detail here. So now I've assigned a slash 16 to every physical host. And then now the cloud orchestration system plays a vital role in the next step. Because what we also do is take the remaining 16 bits and let's just say for the, for the sake of discussion here today, let's just split that in half between eight bits for the segment ID and eight bits for the endpoint ID. Now that segment ID makes that slash six, that those eight bits would make that slash 16 on the host a slash 24, okay? Now on that host, I have now up to 255 slash 24s, mm-hmm. okay? Now... I rely upon the orchestration system to manage those unique and individually assign them to a tenant. So for example, OpenStack knows about all the tenants that are going to launch VMs. It knows about all the individual segments that that tenant may choose to further segment further. And it knows which host it wishes to launch a VM on. So the cloud orchestration system has all the information that it needs to maintain that route hierarchy and to ensure that every IP address and interface that is brought up can stay within the address hierarchy so that the isolation can be maintained. So let me, let's walk through a very specific example. Did that make sense, Ethan? Yeah, so far so good. You know, the, again, the, the key here being the orchestrators, the OpenStack or uh, Kubernetes, I believe, Romano works with as well, right? Uh, yes. is going to understand what endpoints are going to belong to which tenants and then how to assign blocks of IPs uh, and keep those addresses straight. In other words, there's a database that's going to be tracking network blocks and associating them with tenants. So Exactly right. Okay. Let me tell you how I see this, right? What you're effectively doing is using the IP address, the IPv6 address, as an MPLS tag. And you're saying this many bits of the IPv6 address is the tag thing, is this part of the tag. Part. Well, V4, V6 doesn't matter. I'm going to slice up the IP address instead of treating it as as a you know with a mask and all that stuff. I'm just going to use the IP address as a as a tag, and I'm going to arbitrarily segment the bit mask of that to make it like an MPLS tag. I issue an ID, and if I'm a part of this ID, if I define the first you know 16 bits of an IPv4 address or the first 32 bits of a, of an IPv6 address as a tag, then I can use it just like I do with MPLS. That is, if I match with that tag, I can perform an action on it. Then if I move that into the host, then I can say, if I'm matching that piece of the tag, then I have these properties. I can attach metadata to the tag. And the metadata comes from the controller that you place, which is in OpenStack. You couldn't do this with the way we network today because normally all of our systems are isolated, unconnected, unintegrated. They're dumb because they all work alone. But when you get into OpenStack or VMware or any type of orchestration and automation tool, all of a sudden you've got all the metadata about the servers or all the metadata about the network, and you can start to attach meaning to the tag. And now in MPLS, we use LDP and BGP to communicate metadata about the tag. This tag belongs to this circuit, or this tag has these properties, this cost property, and the network knows about it. But what we're doing here is just saying, this piece of the IP address, when it matches this, think about it as a tag, and when I see that tag, the operating system says, ah, but there's this metadata associated with it that comes from the controller. That's how I see it. Is that fair? 
That is not only fair, it is exactly right. And I've talked, I've had conversations with people and I've used that exact same analogy because you you, you mentioned an MPLS tag. You could just as easily map it to a VXLAN VNID. Mm-hmm. It's the same concept. There is some bit field that associates a group of endpoints with a, a network segment, whether it's an MPLS header, whether it be a VNID, or in this case, as you exactly correctly said, in my example, bits uh, 9 through uh, 16 of hmm. the IPv4 address. But that yes. is exactly right. That is yeah. exactly right. Effectively so using the IP header or the IP address, the, the IP address in the IP header as a tag. But right. the key is that there's the control plane in the same way that MPLS has a control plane of BGP, LDP, or whatever it is you're choosing to use, because there's many ways to do it these days, you need an open stack controller or some other thing to make sense of the tagging, to make exactly the right. metadata relevance. Yeah. Right. And so let me just also agree that none of this would be possible without a cloud orchestration system. It wouldn't even be meaningful. I mean, what would you do with it if you, if you didn't have OpenStack, uh, sort of the whole orchestration system that even required this? So again, it's sort of what's old is new again. And so the things that we used in the past, we can make better use of them now that we have uh, orchestration systems like Kubernetes and OpenStack. So let me go through my example a bit more deeply, and then we'll, it hopefully it'll be even more clear. So let's take that example where you've got, within the host, you've got a 10 slash 16, and let's say there are two tenants, and one is uh, 10 slash 0.24, and then 10.0.128 slash 24. So basically you've just got two separate tenants one with a zero and one with a 128 in that third octet, okay? Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the octet that we've set aside to identify the tenant, okay? And then the, the last octet, those lower eight bits are just endpoint IDs that would be assigned to ver- different interfaces. Okay, so now we can just do a very simple scenario where OpenStack says, uh, it just got a request for, to launch a, a new virtual machine. Well, OpenStack knows who asked for that virtual machine. It's going to be tenant number zero. Okay. OpenStack chooses the host it's going to run on. So it knows what host it's going to set on. It knows what segment that that tenant requested that virtual machine to run on. And by the way, OpenStack has an IP address management system, or Romana provides an IP address management system to track the endpoint IDs. So OpenStack just fetches one of those available IP addresses and creates the IP address that that virtual machine needs to be launched on that host to maintain that address hierarchy. Now, the next tenant that comes along, it could be tenant one, in which case it'll create the IP address for them when it launches that machine, except in that tenant segment, it's going to be 128 instead of zero. So now there's actually a physical CIDR that maps to actual tenants. So each tenant on a host has their own CIDR, okay? Now that is a tremendous uh, advantage when we want to apply security policy to it because we can apply IP tables, rules, and filters based on that entire net mask. So again, the route aggregation that we take advantage of through the IP address management allows us to isolate it without going to the extent of applying filters on an individual endpoint basis. And that would be the case if we, ha- if we were not able to take advantage of route aggregation. So if we just had to do host routes, for example, you'd have to have a complexity of this problem kind of explodes. So the fact that we take advantage of hierarchical routing, apply net masks or you know, ciders per tenant on each host 
allows us to apply the security policies using standard IP tables and filter rules on the host really quite easily. So, so th- this, is, this is actually really important. The way you're doing the isolation then to enforce the multi-tenancy is, uh, is IP tables, and the IP table scheme doesn't blow up out of control because of the hierarchical nature in which the addresses are assigned to hosts. Exactly right. Mm, and let's, okay. let's take a very simple example. Let's say you had 100 virtual machines running on a host, and they were, they were all just launched willy-nilly with you know, random IP addresses. Well, if you wanted to lock those down, you could do it, but you'd have to set rules for every slash 32. But the fact that we can aggregate at the tenant level, and in this case, it was at the slash 24 level, the number of rules that need to be applied collapses by a factor of 255 right there in that example. You said something else here. Now, the rules that we're applying are happening on the the host at the hypervisor level, not on virtual machines individually. Exactly right. So the way OpenStack applies security to virtual machines is through setting rules on the uh, virtualization host. Now, they use OpenVSwitch. What else? OpenVSwitch and something else. But regardless, the security is enforced on the host using IP tables rules. And we use that exact same technique by applying isolation rules on the, on the host itself. So that's, that's the same. So, um, okay, so by us, we're talking about Romana. So there's yes. a few things here. What, I, what I'm putting together in my head is there's a bunch of software components that make up Romana to allow it to do what it does. Uh, this isn't just a scheme that happens on paper. There's there's a Romana bits of software that interact with the cloud orchestration system to make this happen. Now you mentioned IPAM. You mentioned something that's managing these IP tables rules. Uh, are there other components to Romana here? Yes. So there are several components to the the whole solution. There is an IP address management server that uh, sits behind OpenStack Neutron, and that is the uh, essentially it's the database that keeps track of which IP addresses have been used. And there's, a little, there's an interface driver that plugs into OpenStack that allows it to access our IPAM system, the Romana IPAM system. So there's that component. Now, kind of like two sides of the coin here. One is not really useful without the other. Uh, the IP address management by itself is really not very useful uh, unless you've got the ability to set the routes and the policies and the filter rules on the hosts. And we do that through a, essentially a route controller. So that's also a separate piece of software. It actually runs on the Neutron node when you're running OpenStack. So the IPAM, IPAM software and the route controller software runs on the Neutron node. And the, the Romana route controller and the Romana IPAM module, they coordinate with one, with one another so that when a new IP address is a new endpoint is launched with the correct IP address, the route controller coordinates with OpenStack to set the routes on the host. And we do that through another agent that's running on the host to set the IP tables rules. So that would be equivalent to the layer two agent in OpenStack. Instead of using a layer two agent in OpenStack, you'd use a Romana agent. So there's a uh, correspondence there. So those are the three major pieces. You've got a route controller, you've got an IPAM system, and then you've got a, a host agent. And I'm guessing this is all API-driven then? It'd be, yes. Yeah, I, I know OpenStack's all API. That's how all the modules talk to each other, and so therefore Romana's got its API as well. Yes, exactly right. So th- these are all uh, RESTful uh, services 
So you can actually, if you're kind of a Unix hacker, you can just go curl, blah, 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 and, and you can uh, actually control it from the command line. We actually have a command line tool as well. But this is all, uh, for the most part, all of this takes place behind the scenes, and the interactions with Romana are actually through the standard orchestration uh, APIs. So someone that's using OpenStack would never know that Romana is behind the scenes launching machines with IP addresses and uh, applying those security rules. So um, that's the intent, whether you're using Kubernetes or OpenStack, uh, the backend system is really invisible to you. And I guess what you're implying there is today you've got integrations with OpenStack and Kubernetes that are complete and operational, but in theory this could work, Romana could work with any cloud orchestration platform if someone was to make the effort to uh, hook into the API and do the, do the code required. It, that's exactly right. So Mesosphere is another one that makes a lot of sense. We just haven't gotten around to figuring out all the bits and bobs to make that happen. But, you know, there's some standards emerging around how you configure an interface that are emerging here. So hopefully that shouldn't be that big of a, uh, an effort for us. So let me, let me play devil's advocate and ask you some you know, more skeptical questions about the solution here. Uh, one of those would be would be scale. Uh, I could I could say... VXLAN gives you a huge number of, uh, of VNIDs to allow you to do multi-tenancy. This does not scale that big, uh, not even close. So what is your response to that? Well, I, I've heard that before. And my initial response is that um, 16 million endpoints in a 10 slash 8 is actually pretty big. And while you certainly don't get 24 bits that you get of endpoint IDs that you get in a VXLAN header, you've got to be a pretty big deployment to seriously come close to filling up an entire 10 slash 8. Now, that said, there are people that can't fit inside a 10 slash 8 because you can't use everyone. Every time you sort of put a, a address boundary in there, your allocation is not as efficient. So we do have a way to allow people to use multiple 10 slash 8s. And the way you would interact across those two verfs, if you will, would be either through NAT, that'd be the, sort of the ugly way, or you could assign a block of addresses that were shared across these two uh, zones, if you will. And uh, very much like you know an external network in OpenStack, you would use these this shared block or overlapping block as the service endpoint for applications that needed to cross that boundary. Sort of the unit of scale here uh, in that case would be a standalone 10 slash 8. Now, we haven't built either of those things yet, Ethan, but as we get further into deployments and people do bump up against that limit, those are two ways in which we think we can address the scaling uh, limitation. Well, doesn't IPv6 also address this issue? Absolutely. You took, the, you took the words right out of my mouth. So the IPv6 clearly would blow that limitation right out of the water with a full 128 bits of addresses to scale. And, uh, you know, I even, I've even uh, heard people on your, on your podcast talk about sort of the abundance of IP addresses and just, you know, coming up with creative uses for them. So IPv6 is clearly a way to take even better advantage of, of this approach. And, and as people deploy IPv6, we certainly will be ready for them. Okay, so you're saying Ramada will, I mean, I don't, I don't think it supports IPv6 endpoint addressing today, as I understand it, but that's on the roadmap? Absolutely, yes. Okay. All right, what if I say I want vMotion? This doesn't seem yeah. to lend itself to that. That's right. In order to use vMotion, it has to retain its IP address. 
And that's been one of the primary drivers to maintaining layer two adjacency. And in fact, even stretching VLANs using VXLAN across a, a data center fabric. So vMotion is a really popular and really useful feature. Two points to, to make here. So first of all, we started with the premise that you're beginning with a, the cloud native architectural style. And when you begin with that, the requirement for vMotion actually uh, doesn't even exist. So if I wanted to stay true to that premise, I would say, we don't do it. It cannot be done. Because you're, you're kidding yourself if you say you need vMotion, because in fact, if you truly have a cloud native application, uh, there is no dependency on a single IP address as such. That's right, because the, the way they deal with that uh, issue is through simply launching a new VM where you want it, and killing the old one and relying upon a service endpoint to abstract that actual uh, address. So the idea of microservices sort of fly is sort of directly conflicts with the requirement for managing a virtual machine as though it were a pet that needed yeah. to be managed and moved. So that whole right, pets right. versus cattle paradigm sort of is, is uh, uh, built into the cloud native architectural style that sort of precludes or even eliminates the need for a vMotion. Now that said, there are people that still want it, and we have not built this yet, but we are in, in it's uh, under development right now, which is, so we can support vMotion, but it would need to occur across a layer three boundary. And the way we would do that would be to in an inject a host route into ah, the infrastructure. Yes. Because as soon as you move that box, it now breaks our beautiful hierarchical Correct. addressing scheme. Yep. Exactly right. So for a limited number of... Um, uh, moves, uh, we can do vMotion by injecting host routes. And in fact, there are some really legitimate reasons for moving a VM live and that for, for scheduled maintenance and taking off a, uh, a host offline and bleeding capacity. So there are some operational requirements that can take advantage of, of, of vMotion. And really, those are the ones that are um, driving our effort to do that. So again, you inject a host route and then one by one, move a VM to a new host. And then one by one, you could actually aggregate those routes and get back your CIDR on a different host. But again, it's not been done yet, but it is certainly possible. And, you, you, and you're seeing enough demand from people who you're talking to about using this project that uh, you, you obviously feel there's enough industry need that you're going to build this in. Yeah, that ability to inject a host route is actually useful for other reasons. So we're definitely building that. So it'll solve the vMotion problem for the people that want vMotion. But what it also does, it allows people that want to bring a public IP address down to a particular virtual machine to do that as well. All right, another devil's advocate question, Chris. Uh, native IP with no end cap, no tag, no nothing that's otherwise separating that IP packet and making it look unique on the wire to me, that makes me nervous from a multi-tenancy perspective. Now, we've talked about IP tables a little bit, but let's say I'm still nervous. Uh, why shouldn't I be? A couple of reasons. You're, you're building this whole network, I'm sorry, all these endpoints on a single 10 slash 8 that you can isolate however you wish. So I said this would be on a VRF and, you know, as people build out an OpenStack cloud infrastructure. And so traffic getting out of that little bubble uh, is certainly under your control. You can lock that down however you, however you wish with firewalls. Now, within that range, the actual isolation be between tenants 
actually is done at the host level. And when you actually go down to what's happening inside the Linux kernel, it is actually indistinguishable from what is being done when you use a layer two method of isolation. When it gets down actually in the kernel, there's an IP table rules. And the difference between the way it gets enforced using layer three or the difference between it's getting enforced by applying layer two is really indistinguishable in the kernel. Because of where the IP table's processing happens as the packet is moving through the kernel. Correct. Exactly right. There's just one bit of kernel code, and, the, and, and it's going to have some rules that either trigger on a layer two header or a layer three header, and it's going to drop the packet, and that's how the isolation is maintained. And you'll think of OpenFlow. Okay, so you know, OpenFlow allows you to set those bits and, 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 and drop the packet as you, as you wish. It's all just a stream of bits. Getting back to the MPLS metaphor of, from Greg or, or a few moments ago, the kernel is just going to look at a different field in the data stream to, to trigger the enforcement. Mm. So to that extent, it's indistinguishable from a layer two approach. There's some differences on the margin, but as far as I want to go technical yeah. detail, I want to go into here. <laughs> it's, fine enough. it's good enough. Now, we didn't talk too much about the routing, but as I read on the Ramada project, the uh, core routing functionality is actually static routes. You put summarized static routes within your LeafSpine architecture that point a uh, an aggregated route up to a host. And and that's it. You've just got very simple static routing in Leaf and Spine. And I immediately thought, you're kidding. Static routes. Yeah. No, I'm going to yeah. use BGP or, or something. Uh, yes. Do I really? Static routes? Come on, Chris. Yeah, good, good point. And uh, it's sort of something we've overlooked so far because we haven't had to really uh, address it. But it's actually bubbling up, you know, literally uh, in, in real time here uh, as we talk to more users. So you can connect the hosts however you wish. And in fact, the demos that we show have all of the physical host attached on a layer two segment. And what that means is that all the, all the hosts can learn about the other routers essentially just by ARPing and finding the gateway on the other host. That j just works on a layer two segment. Now, when you, get to, when you scale that out and the top of rack is actually routing, okay, then you actually have to configure the top of rack switch to be the, a router. You can... Okay, so this is a part of our, our, our roadmap here. We have an agent that configures the routes using IP tables and net filter rules on the host. And white box Linux switches would just as easily run that agent and be able to configure that cumulus like white box Tor just like a host. And it, it could apply the routes directly on the Tor. And that certainly would work. However, as you say, Ethan, a much more traditional and familiar way to introduce routes would be through an IGP like OSPF. And so what we expect to happen is, and we're actually working on this right now, is that our route controller would essentially just speak OSPF to the TORs and configure those routes. So they would be, uh, they would be unchanging in the sense that you're always going to have that slash 16 to the host, but they wouldn't be static in the sense that they're not managed by a, a route distribution protocol. It's not that everyone's learning routes from everyone else through the traditional uh, distributed routing paradigm that we're used to. It's centrally managed and you're just using, well, you, you cited OSPF as an example, as a means to inject those routes into the system where they need to, where they need to go. 
Exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. Okay. And you know, as we talk to customers that are, are people that are um, deploying this on a larger scale, the the problem it actually needs a route distribution protocol because they're segmenting into availability zones. They've got different uh, WAN requirements and so forth. Where you know BGP and a and a, and a route distribution protocol is actually the right tool for the job. So mm-hmm. we want to you know plug right into that and not have to worry about doing all sorts of crazy tail F kind of, uh, you know, configuration management of the, of the network infrastructure. Except when you want to do vMotion and then you're using static routes, so now you've got to have a protocol to redistribute as VMs move around in the system. Exactly right. And so now you still need a, you still need a dynamic routing protocol or something, and so the static routing doesn't solve that problem. And in any case... The weakness in this is at scale, most switches only have 32,000 TCAM entries, and if you're starting to use static routing and have lots of IP addresses in your routing tables, um, you can run out, and this is a weakness in container networks, that you run out of TCAMs in your switches. And that's where, for me, the whole hardware networking thing collapses. So I struggle with anything that uses the underlay as a software-defined networking or is a, an orchestrated network piece because you, you have this limited resources in the underlay and you can exceed them. And that can be not just simple things like volume, I've got to have enough TCAM entries for the routing table, or but it can also be speed, how fast can I update the TCAM tables or how fast can the operating system spin or how fast can things change. And those hardware dependencies are just an eternal pain which can be avoided with different sorts of ways of doing things. Well, Chris, your argument here on that is we're using aggregated addresses and we should have host routes only as a a rare exception. And so in theory, you wouldn't be approaching those sorts of limits normally if people stay within the scheme. That's exactly right. So the number of routes, if you can maintain the route hierarchy by using the IPAM, that problem never uh, comes up, Greg. But your point about the host routes, that absolutely might come up to the extent you use those host routes. So, but we're talking a, you know, a very small number of host routes that would be uh, required there. But the, your, your point is, 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 is legitimate. It's the extent to which we can mitigate that by taking advantage of route aggregation and minimizing the use of, uh, of, of host routes. Mm. And one other, thing, one other thing I'll mention, Greg, about... Um, Container networks. So when you deploy something like Kubernetes and your or Docker and you're launching containers, you know, with a, a velocity ten or a hundred times faster than you normally might launch a VM. Mm. If you have to wait for a VXLAN VTEP VNID to be propagated to all the different hosts. That's going to take some time for it to converge, whether it's using BGP for a route distribution or even just a VTEP SDN controller. That doesn't happen instantly. And if you have the lifespan of a container measured in seconds and the time for the network to converge also measured in seconds, something's not going to work there. And the nice thing about Romana is that once those routes are set up in the route hierarchy... The only thing that needs to happen for interface to become available is the interface needs to be brought up with the IP address. All the reachability information is designed in. Mm. And that's an important, as we go forward and people take better advantage or more advantage of, mm. of container uh, networks, uh, that convergence problem won't ever emerge. Mm, maybe. I, I remain unconvinced. I, I can see lots of, like, it's going to be fine. I, I'm sure the solution works. I, I just. 
you know, my my challenge with I'm a big believer in software based overlays and encapsulation overlays, and their ability to be configured without having to deal with the vagaries of hardware. And when I say hardware, I mean not just the silicon, but the operating systems that run on them, which honestly sometimes is in pretty poor shape. And relying on those operating systems can be extremely challenging, and so therefore I don't normally do that. That's my challenge there. So that's just the caveat that I would explain to this approach. It's a fine approach. I'm just concerned that, you know. Well, let me uh, share maybe an alternative perspective. I talk to many, many large Cisco customers, mm. and the idea of bringing an overlay into that environment and the, uh, the opacity that comes with that just in terms of debugging and finding the, where the packet arrived, that presents a whole different set of challenges. So uh, that is the trade-off that people make. Uh, whereas the, this approach that does not use the overlay, you can just put Wireshark on that. You can find everything you, you need to debug and diagnose a problem. So yes. there's the clear and that's an old, And to me, that's a, that's a 1990s attitude. That's not where we are anymore. The, the debugging has to be done in the flow itself, in the overlay, not in the underlay. So if you think that capturing packets is a successful strategy, then why hasn't that worked reliably for the last 20 years is my vision would be my response. Mm. There's something to be said for simplicity though, Greg. And this is one of the things that drew me to this project is because yep. you get the same functionality with a with mm. a simpler solution. Uh, doing away with overlay does take away mm -hmm. some amount of uh, complexity. And that just at a gut level, as someone who's done a lot of network design over the years, that has a great appeal. Mm. I, I'm not disagreeing. I'm saying there's good parts to it. But I'm a big believer these days in the value of overlays and the fact that I don't have to fiddle around with, I don't have to yeah. spend my life futzing. And I, I don't want to sound too defensive on this, but mm. I do want to add one other point, Greg, that if mm. you look to the very largest operators, they don't use an overlay. Mm. You just go down the list of the largest operators and uh, none of them are using overlays. So... Um, I think the jury's still out on that. And I think for, yep. for, for, for some users, I, I think overlays make a lot of sense. For VMware, I think it makes perfect sense. For yep. you know, ACI and enterprise uh, data centers, I think it makes perfect sense. Again, but we're starting with, it, with a different premise. And mm -hmm. uh, under those the cloud native premise. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, Ethan. Yeah. So, no, I don't, I don't want to discount that. I'm just saying, uh, giving you, a, a, you know, if you like, a different perspective. Sure. Yeah. Well, Chris, one other devil's advocate question is: What is Romana introducing as a new attack surface? I mean, it can because yeah. can, I mean, Romana is pretty powerful in what it's doing for me in my data center layout. Could it be attacked in some way that's going to allow some wily uh, attacker to stand up an endpoint that shouldn't be there in some way or another? Right. Well, each of the um, uh, services, the the IPAM and the route controller, they all interact with one another using encrypted and authenticated HTTP. So that's a RESTful endpoint that's secured. Now, it doesn't increase the attack service to the extent that nobody can ever, the only thing that can access those APIs is the orchestration system itself. So if you breach the orchestration system, then you would get access to uh, not only Romana, but all the other things that are, that are behind that. So the attack vector is really the same then, because what you're as it was before my orchestration system, because you're saying Ramana does not stand off to the side; it is fully integrated with my orchestration system and talking to my orchestration system, not to some third party accepting inputs. Yes, that's right. Yep. Mm, okay. 
Well, Chris Marino, thanks for taking the time to share Romana with us and uh, and 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 defend it <laughs> <laughs> with uh, with packet pushers. Now, if folks want to find out more about this project, where do they go? Sure. Yes, there's a site project at Romana.io, and there's a lot of information there. There's a little blog that captures the the videos and links to some presentations that we've made around town. And uh, you can reach me at uh, on Twitter at at Chris Underbar Marino, or email me at chris at romana.io. Those will all find their way to me. Well, very good. Uh, and, and we know you present now and again. Are you going to be showing up around anytime soon speaking on this? I, I am, actually. If anyone's in the Bay Area, I'm going to be speaking uh, on um, June 7th at a uh, OpenStack operators meetup. I don't have the, uh, the location just yet. Uh, and then again on June 14th in the San Francisco... Uh, OpenStack meetup in the Rackspace uh, office in in San Francisco, and there's uh, there should be a link in the show notes. And if you go to the San Francisco OpenStack meetup page, you'll see the details there. And just depending on when this show publishes, that uh, that those dates might have gone by already. But if not, uh, and you're in the Bay Area, there you go. Go listen to Chris chat about this. Uh, I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. Greg is at Ethereal Mind. And of course, this has been the Packet Pushers podcast. You can follow this show at Packet Pushers. Thank you for listening to the show today. You can find this and many more fine free technical podcasts along with our community blog. That is bloggers from the community, just engineers sharing their experiences all at packetpushers.net. You can find us on LinkedIn if you uh, that's your hangout. Uh, Facebook, we're even there. And uh, rate us on iTunes. We would really appreciate that. It helps us out a bunch to know how we're doing. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.